You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. All right, welcome to Why We Do What We Do. I will be your host, Abraham. And I will be your co-host, Shane. And Shane, I've got something in my front pocket for you. (laughs) Why don't you reach in and see what it is? Is it keys? And some lint, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I was not prepared for that. I had no idea where that was going. (laughs) Yeah, I kind of just made it up on the spot. Um, I mean, I didn't write that. That's that's a song that's existed for a long time, but (laughs) I just decided I would use it on the spot, I guess. It worked. Great. I'm glad. (laughs) I wasn't sure if it would. (laughs) So today we are talking about euphemisms Uh, and why we do euphemisms. Why do euphemism? (laughs) I think my favorite thing about this is that, you know, (laughs) when people talk about language being confusing, I think this is probably one of my favorite things about it is like, there's just so many challenges that come out with languaging in general and euphemisms just seem to complicate things more. Yeah. So I'm excited to talk about this. They're trying to learn English and we're like, you think that's bad? (laughs) Wait till you hear about euphemisms. (laughs) You have no idea. So we'll we'll get to defining euphemisms, but one of the other things we'll discuss is how that alternative phrasing is chosen, or alternative words, if you will, and sort of where that comes from, and how it's different from just sort of general slang and also sort of political correctness, because that'll come up a lot too. Especially like as we're kind of going through the show notes and stuff, we're like looking at all of those different aspects and like kind of trying to figure out what was what where. So you'll see what we mean when we kind of get into it, because there are some fun topics today that are society's greatest hits. Yeah, including in reverse alphabetical order, sex, (laughs) sex work, death, disability, and body fluids and body functioning. Not all at the same time. (laughs) Oh my God. I just want to be clear. These are just talking points that we hit on as we go through this. Rule 34. It just happens. <laughs> it just happens. So anyway, yeah, those are the things that are one of the most common areas in which euphemisms tend to develop. And yeah, so real quickly, though, let's define our terms as we are wont to do. And we'll begin with the dictionary defines euphemism as. <laughs> <laughs> Will you please just do a whole episode in that voice? I don't know that anyone would want to hear that. But. <laughs> We'll just we'll do that on voice modulation on that episode. Okay, but this actually does come from the dictionary. That's why I had to say it that way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Which is the uh, it's a substitution of an agreeable or inoffensive expression for one that may offend or suggest something unpleasant. Which is to say, it may be used to cover profanity or speak openly about topics that are considered taboo and to talk about them in a way that is more socially acceptable. So, for example, if you might say, "Did you just break wind?" As opposed to, did you just let one rip? Or even just saying fart. Fart is such an offensive word. And t- yeah. like just the way it's like such, there's so many hard letters in that. <laughs> That's the problem. It's the F and the T. If it had been something else, like, I don't, I don't have another good example. Change the F to an H and the T to an L. Did you just harl? Did you just harl? That sounds worse, actually. <laughs> oh. Yeah. I take it back. I take it back. Fart is fine. <laughs> And so this sort of is related to this idea that if we simply call an unpleasant thing by a more pleasant name, that it will reduce how unpleasant we find that thing. And that's just kind of, I guess, like the idea of softening the blow a little bit, right? So 
So we start looking at this idea of selection of alternate words and how they shift over time. What it can do is it can tell us about shifting moral and cultural values. So this is kind of an interesting thing to look at. It's, you know, what's socially acceptable to say? What's a more socially appropriate or less offensive thing to say in that context? And what happens sometimes is the original term had been labeled politically incorrect or the new term becomes politically incorrect. So you see this kind of like ebb and flow of languaging around these terms because it's all based on what's currently culturally relevant at that moment. I mean, for example, and psychology is a really good example of things like this because the word idiot was a specific technical term for a while, as well as retard or retardant or retarded were terms that were, they had a specific technical definition and were not considered offensive. Moron was another one. And dumb was another one. And so these are all words that were used as part of like scientific literature that got co-opted to be used as something that was offensive and as a put down. And that became a, I guess, inappropriate way to refer to people that belittled another group of people. And so that's a good example of like these used to be terms that people used in like medical and psychological literature because they were diagnostic terms, and then they got appropriated to be offensive terms. Yeah. And so you'll see that happen a lot. So for example, over time, the original word that was used became less acceptable by a culture, but still warrants discussion to be in public or private. And thus an alternative considered to be less aversive takes over or less offensive takes over. Right. So that's where you see like those changes and you see that like now there's a new word for this and now there's a less offensive, more socially appropriate word. And so these euphemisms might emerge as an attempt to be more politically correct. Like I mentioned before, and exactly like Abraham was saying, where we say the term developmental disabilities versus mental retardation, even like within that, you see some people will say individuals with developmental disabilities. I see this with autism. Like you see individuals with autism a lot in the discussion around that, the, the languaging around that person-centered language is individuals with autism. That was the less offensive thing. Now it's calling somebody autistic is the more appropriate term based on some people's preferences based on the autistic community. So there's some really interesting discussions around changing the language just around that type of label. And a lot of people get frustrated with feeling like, well, it always changes. And yeah, it does. But that's just because that's what culture does. So it's always going to be a moving target. And you just try and be as considerate as possible as that target continues to shift and culture ebbs and flows around use of these terms. It's possible that we would readopt some of those old offensive terms to be technical again. I don't really see it happening, but you know, there is an ebb and flow to all of this. So let's talk about how euphemisms might affect others contextually. And so let's talk about murder. Why don't we? Here's our foray into, <laughs> into true crime podcasting. <laughs> so there's a Psychology Today blog in this year in 2020 that entailed the discussion of a British serial killer who murdered prostitutes. And I'm going to get to that term in just a moment. But these specific victims were drug addicts forced to the street by their habit of drug use and we're living in the this really intense and honestly brutal sort of survival level existence. And they described it as, quote, the most wretched type of existence that our society has to offer, end quote. I mean, that evokes a whole lot of thoughts in general, right? Like just hearing all that just sounds really, really rough. And so now they've set the stage for this discussion, right? Yeah, that's what it's like to live in Nebraska. The most wretched type of existence. <laughs> Just kidding. Yeah, Moss Eisley too, right? I was born in Nebraska. I can throw it. That's that's why I chose to throw it under the bus. <laughs> that's fine. That's fine. I don't. Yeah, I think you're the only person I I know from Nebraska. It's a closed bubble. Yeah, yeah. So 
What's interesting about this particular discussion is that the media chose to call the British victims sex workers and didn't overtly use the term prostitutes. So they changed the languaging around the way they are discussing and describing the victims of these crimes. And you can cross-reference this with the highbrow, if you will, the high-level elitist escorts that accompany the rich and famous for a fee. And there's, of course, the happy ending to an otherwise glamorous affair, which is to say hiring people to sort of be on their shoulder and then take home and pay them to finish the night. And then that is all seen as this very sort of elitist privilege sort of thing. When you talk about kind of like the descriptions around this and the languaging around this, all you have to do is look at the, I mean, this is a very surface level comparison, but when you look at Julia Roberts and pretty woman versus Charlie's Theron and monster cage match, <laughs> da, da, da. the lesson here might be that the tougher sex worker gets you an Oscar, but also in the languaging and the descriptions around those two different lifestyles. I mean, it makes a huge difference. It portrays a very particular perspective or story around because they're doing the same thing right they're doing the same thing in that same situation but they are just the the languaging around that is very different and so you actually might have a new euphemism develop out of this for a sex worker calling a sex worker a julia roberts might be a compliment whereas calling a sex worker a Charlize theron might be considered rude or offensive because of what is entailed by how those characters were shown in those movies I wonder how Julia Roberts or Charlize Theron would feel about either of those. Probably not super stoked. Yeah, I'd say probably neither of those things. (laughs) They would probably not like those. So really the core of what we're trying to talk about in this particular section is the idea of the sex worker discussion and the evolution of the term sex worker. So historically, the act of sex was a thing to replace, hence the call girl, the escort, the courtesan, the lady of the night. So the idea is that sex worker became kind of a more normalized term in the lexicon regarding people who were receiving money for work around sexualized jobs, right? Maybe they were engaging in prostitution or maybe they're doing film or something like that. But the term sex worker kind of evolved to kind of encompass all of that. I think it's pronounced courtesan. Cortisone? Oh, cor- uh, yeah. Cortesian's definitely not. So. <laughs> anyway, so it was sort of considered taboo to talk about that, talk about prostitution or, or even sex work. And so, yeah, they got these other euphemism names to replace them with, as you were just describing. And so a conventional opinion disparages the lack of an organizational structure for street sex workers compared to what might be considered a respectable profession, for example, the sex industry. Thus, if a woman is employed, it must not be against her will and therefore could lead to a more reputable existence. For example, the Amsterdam Red Light District, which is to say, essentially, when it is sanctioned or at least built into the infrastructure of society, it's not regarded as taboo. There's another good example of this that I think is maybe a little closer to home for a lot more people. (laughs) Well, no, this one might be pretty close to home for a lot of people. But when in the United States over the last several years, marijuana weed, cannabis, however you want to call it. Devil's lettuce. There you go. (laughs) Northern lights, wacky tabacky. (laughs) So still with weed, there was something about marijuana actually being an offensive term because it was used to associate it with, I think, some minority culture, but let's call it weed. And over the last several years, it has been legalized across various places in the United States. Not ubiquitously, but a lot of places have either decriminalized it or legalized its sale entirely. And interestingly, there were some data that have started to emerge since this has been going on for some time now, that in places where weed was legalized, the 
users did not actually increase. You did not really see a substantial increase both in the amount or in neither in the amount or in the, the amount of people. So not, not the amount that they were using, nor the number of people who were using it. Turns out that people, if they wanted to smoke weed, they were going to smoke weed regardless of whether or not it was legal. Right. And people who weren't going to smoke weed were not going to smoke weed regardless of whether or not it was legal. Sort of like cigarettes. But anyway, the number of people did not actually increase who were using weed, but their attitudes changed dramatically such that they stopped viewing weed as being this really bad thing. They started viewing it a lot more like alcohol and stopped thinking as smoking weed as a criminal activity. And so that's just another example of like when you have this set up to have infrastructure built around it into the culture, then it's not viewed in such a way that it even needs a, a euphemism anymore. Although I used a ton of euphemisms to talk about it. And you see this kind of happen a lot where like these attitudes do change around certain things and then you see the languaging change around it or, or kind of happens at the same time. And it's really interesting to watch like I'm thinking, you know, it's 2020 now. It's really interesting to watch what is acceptable now compared to what wasn't acceptable when I was growing up and it's just, it's just, that's a culture shift. I mean, that's a perfect example of how, you know, when we were kids, weed was a gateway drug and now it's like, that's eh, fine. Yeah. And even just three years ago when this podcast started more than that now, how things have changed. I don't have any immediate examples, but I, I want to say that they have. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. We're in a very different world now. We are since January. Things have changed. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks January. Okay, so let's get into a topic that might be a little bit difficult to hear, but the purpose being to highlight some euphemisms around it. And this is if there is a miscarriage or death of a newborn, for example, from SIDS. And there are three types of phrasing, according to a Psychology Today article in 2019. There is platitudes, so saying things or communicating ideas that are intended to encourage people to feel better is one example. Yeah. Another example is intention, where it's designed to soothe or protect parents from painful thoughts. There's some cons to this, which is that people might feel that using a euphemism may belittle or dismiss their feelings or dismiss the, the need or the appropriateness for expressing their grief. And so sometimes using a euphemism in this case actually seems less sensitive to the person who's experiencing that pain. Right. So like examples there would be like, it's a blessing or it's God's will, or at least they didn't suffer. It kind of diminishes the gravity of that situation. Not that this is a section for delivering advice, but for people who are in pain, just being supportive of them, not trying to invalidate their suffering, which I think a lot of people feel like they're being supportive when they're actually being, it, it, what they're saying is hurtful. So now there's also medical jargon. And so there are words used by professionals to describe medical conditions. Of course, the intention of this is to provide essentially accurate and honest descriptions. However, doing so may sound, it may come across as cruel or cold or even confusing. It may feel like it lacks empathy and could even seem dismissive or dishonest. Right. So some examples would be like missed abortion, fetal demise, or blighted ovum, which I mean, all of those sound really tough too. So these are terms that people will use, but it seems callous. Yeah. So in conclusion, it's not a good time to tell a grieving mother that Clooney used the same words on ER and wasn't he handsome? Yeah, it's probably not going to work out well. Like, I, I can't imagine that's going to be comforting for anybody. Yeah. So essentially what we've been saying this whole time is that a euphemism is essentially intended to be a gentle or vague way of using words to describe something that can be unpleasant and also something that could be shameful or is otherwise considered taboo. 
Right, and so the intention with euphemisms is that it's supposed to be softer than the real world terminology or the language or like that realist viewpoint, which is considered to be too harsh, too rude, just not helpful really sometimes. I mean, sometimes it's great to know maybe what I'm ailing from, but it's not helpful to hear it in a really cutting way. So the idea of euphemisms is to kind of soften the blow a little bit. And as we mentioned, the drawback to this is that they can sound or feel dismissive avoidant or understating the severity of an issue and for some people can feel invalidating to their experience or feelings right so the examples that we kind of talked about here like passed away gone to a better place like you'll hear these a lot in everyday language and and they are kind of vague and nebulous and they don't really give anything concrete but they are ways that people will language to soften the struggle or soften the pain that might come with a particular context or a particular situation Politically, people might use euphemisms for things like they might say enhanced interrogation as opposed to saying torture. They might categorically deny is a term they might use instead of saying, hell no, I didn't do that, but don't look in my basement. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I imagine there's plenty of senators and representatives that have said that. Yeah, so there's a lot of terms that you'll hear, I think, both in politics that are sort of placeholders for saying what they really think. Right. And then you'll see the term like visually impaired, which isn't necessarily politically incorrect, but it's indicative of someone with partial vision in any such way. And that's one of those things, too, where it's just these descriptions or these words, they might kind of get to the core, the spirit of what the situation is, but don't necessarily describe what's actually happening. And that reminds me that essentially a lot of these were I'm thinking about like the term handicap and that that has had people feel like using that term. I guess, condemns their identity to being they're unable to do things like they're somehow less they have less quality of life and that a lot of people have challenged that saying that I'm differently abled, which means I just do things in a different way. And so that's the more PC way. I hope I'm not outdated on that. That was I thought that was the more PC way of talking about people who, again, are differently abled. So their vision works differently or their hearing works differently or their ambulation is different or something that calling them handicapped is like saying like you are, you know, I guess less of a person than someone else is, is I guess how that community felt that that term seemed to either be used or was, or what that implied. Yeah. You'll see that a lot too in the uh, autistic community and, and folks with neurological disabilities or disorders where they'll move from neurological disorder to neurodiverse, which is one of those things where it does kind of like, it changes the perspective. It changes the attitude around that particular situation. Right. There was the term that I remember when I was first getting into this field, there was the Asperger's syndrome was a thing. Yeah. And there was a whole community of parents who called their kids Aspies mm -hmm. as sort of a, a shorthand for that. And I think it was meant to be sort of playful, but that did for other people sound and feel offensive. And since the diagnosis no longer exists, see a previous episode we did actually on what happened to that. That was a, one of our earlier ones we did. Yeah. Anyway, since it no longer exists, it's kind of an, uh, less of an issue, but yeah. Yeah. So I guess then, you know, we've kind of given some examples and, and they are hard examples to kind of hear, but we kind of are in that space where in those tough situations, uh, there might not be an alternative. Like the alternative might be insufficient. So what do we do in that situation? Like what's the alternative if the alternative isn't sufficient? So yeah, the, the euphemisms and other alternatives, they quote, create distance between people who might otherwise be potential sources of support, end quote. And so 
it's okay to admit that you don't know what to say. That's one suggestion. If you don't have a good euphemism and you don't want to use that term or that phrasing, then you can say, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to call this right now. And that's better than, I think, just guessing and guessing wrong, is to acknowledge the limits of your ability to navigate that situation appropriately. And oftentimes just asking people, how, what would feel the most comfortable for you for me to address this or not? And just get their input. Right. And so, you know, we want to try to avoid alienating people who are experiencing trauma. We want to avoid seeming insensitive or avoidant. We want to be as helpful as possible in those situations. And so psychology today kind of talks about the idea of being blunt and honest, saying something like, I'm sorry, your baby died, avoids nothing in the mix. It directly addresses and validates the situation may also celebrate the life of the infant, but it's still a little bit harsh. So it's one of those things where you can be blunt and honest, but there's still probably a space where you can soften the blow. I probably wouldn't say, I'm sorry your baby died to somebody. I'd probably say, I'm sorry for your loss. I'm sorry for the pain you're feeling. I would probably say something along those lines, which is still honest, but not necessarily that blunt. Yeah. And I'm sorry we've used things such as that example for so much of this episode. We'll we'll turn to other things. It was just the reason that it came up a lot is because it's ripe for euphemisms to avoid directly talking about something that's hard for people to hear. But yeah, we're going to code switch from here on out. Yeah, that was enough references to that as a source for euphemisms. So, all right, let's talk about the seven types of euphemisms. So let's get literal, literal. We pulled these from dailywritingtips.com. And the first one they talk about is abstraction, which is you want to distance people from unpleasant or embarrassing truths. Like we said, passed away for people who died or suffered from exhaustion for suicide-related incidents. So, Or with Joe Exotic was a troubled and tortured soul, but so were those tigers, right? So abstraction kind of like distances people from those unspeakable or unpleasant truths. Another one is indirection. And so this replaces an explicit description of an action. So, for example, took a vacation instead of going to jail or for a procedure. If you were going in for a medical procedure, you might say something like going in for a procedure without being specific. So that's oh, I guess that's not an indirection, though. That's more of being vague. Oh, there was one that they did on South Park once is I'm going to drop the kids off of the pool was a euphemism for going poop. Yep. And so, yeah, that's <laughs> that, that's another euphemism there. That's a little bit more PG. Yeah, sometimes the euphemisms are grosser than the actual phrase themselves. And that's where I think there is room for comedy, but we'll get to that in a moment. Right. So there's also one called litotes, which is a rhetorical device in which the gravity or force of an idea is softened by a double negative. So you might say like somebody's not exactly a genius when you're calling somebody stupid or maybe saying like Joffrey wasn't really the worst when Joffrey was really awful on Game of Thrones, right? (laughs) Or maybe you go out to a restaurant and you say, that's probably not the best place to eat instead of just being like, don't eat there. You'll get food poisoning. It's not my favorite thing, but it is my least favorite thing. (laughs) (laughs) It's not exactly the best, but it's definitely the worst. Yeah. That doesn't really work. But yeah. So what you'll see is like toadies will kind of work around the situation and almost like you have to pick up the nuance of that and say like, oh, well, they're they're saying they're not exactly a genius or it's not exactly the best place where like you have to kind of get the underlying meaning of that. And hey, we learned a new word, litotes. Yeah, it took us forever to figure out how to pronounce that. Figure out how to figure out. Yeah, that's what we do. Another one is a mispronunciation, which is, again, sometimes done to comedic effect. This is just altering the pronunciation of the term or phrase so as to try and offend people less than using the actual (laughs) profanity, which is particularly funny if you think of people who talk with an accent or whatever, and they might then alter something that doesn't have that 
sound to sound more, I guess, offensive unintentionally. Right. And this is both figurative and literal. And this also called like minced oaths is a term that's applied to this, which kind of is its own euphemism in a way. Right. Uh, also a great term. Yeah. Like friggin is a really good example. <laughs> a hole. Shoot. <laughs> I like shoot dang. Yeah. Shoot dang. Dang. Yeah. is definitely one. A common usage can be seen in the horrible overdub edits on movies and TV. So, for example, in the movie Die Hard, the edited version is yippee ki Mr. Falcon. <laughs> <laughs> That's my favorite. There are some TV networks that have really great over-the-top dubs like this that you have to find. One of the ones that we talk about, too, is in The Big Lebowski. This is what happens, Larry. This is what happens when you find a stranger in the Alps. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty funny. Yeah, it's good. Did you ever see the movie Tag? Yes. Okay. It's actually pretty funny, but I was saw it on an airplane and back when that was the thing. And it was of course the edited version, but there was a scene where they did this. They replaced it with something that was like this, but it was so much swearing that I have no I could not figure out for the life of me what was supposed to be going on in the dialogue in that scene. That's fantastic. I was like, I'm just gonna have to watch this movie after this because this does not make any sense. Like I don't even know what they're supposed to be kind of saying anymore. As an aside, I'm going to give my own hot take here, which is if you don't like the language in a movie, then just don't watch it. This whole editing thing is just silly to me. Well, I think we'll get to why in a a little bit. But yeah, another one is the movie Casino, where the edited version is forget me, forget you, you mother forgetter. (laughs) Or like any Samuel L. Jackson movie is going to have some too, right? Like snakes on a plane. I've had it with these monkey fighting snakes on this Monday to Friday plane. (laughs) That's so dumb. Who's it sound and thinks of these? That would be a dream job for me. I would love that. You think so? Oh, my God. I think it's the best thing ever. To me, it's hilarious. Like, it brings so much joy. Look, we're here talking about this. I'd rather that actually be in the script, though, honestly. Yeah, that's fair, I guess. I'll give you that. But anyway, I see what you're saying, though. It is. It, they are funny. Perhaps the best from The Exorcist. <laughs> Your mother sews socks that smell. Oh, man. That's my favorite line from The Exorcist. So, Or, you yeah. know, we talked about Kids Bop. May it burn in hell. All right. Anyway. So that was all the the mispronunciation, which I am mispronunciating all over the place. So that was number four. So number five of the seven is modification, a bluntly offensive noun that can be transformed into a euphemism by converting it into an adjective. So for example, makes him look stupid instead of he's stupid. He is stupid or he's an idiot person. Again, that's a weird offensive term from long ago. Right. Or that woman in Central Park was a little Karen-ish. But her name was Amy. Yeah, instead of just calling her a Karen. Right, exactly. That's a whole thing. So, and there's also personification, right? So that's a little bitchy. That was a stupid comment. You might see that a little bit, right? Or Johnson Little Friend, the one-eyed monster for a phallic body part. Like any of those ones, right? Lucille, like Negan's baseball bat from The Walking Dead. Karen, which is like kind of the term that you might use for somebody who is being over the top, a little bit obnoxious, entitled, who always wants to speak to a manager. But like you'll see that in public freakouts a lot, the term Karen. So that personification piece is basically taking something that's going on and turning it, turning a trait, turning a characteristic, turning something into something person related. The last one is slang which is derived to produce a vocabulary exclusive to a social group. So, for example, you might say screwed up instead of f***ed up, dope to mean appealing or cool, blunt or joint to refer to a weed cigarette, which honestly joint just makes more sense to me. Right. And I don't know if people still say this anymore, on fleek. Is that a thing? I have a 14-year-old, and whenever I say on fleek, which I say every day, she rolls her eyes. So, <laughs> Okay, so it's just a thing for... The old people who were like trying to be cool and that turned yeah, yeah, out yeah. a long time ago. Yeah, yeah. Got it. It's the old people who just discovered Instagram. Yeah. So it, it means 
Eh, we're told to know what it means. Whatever. It's a thing. <laughs> yeah, it's a good thing from what I understand. Okay. On fleek means good. <laughs> <laughs> and then, yeah, so plenty of examples of this. So, I mean, ultimately, one of the questions here is the difference between slang, political correctness, and euphemisms. There kind of isn't one. I think euphemism can be political correctness. A euphemism can be slang. And so I think you might even think of euphemism as maybe the more umbrella term, maybe the more general term to use for these. And that the slang and political correct version of something is just the more specific type of euphemism. Right. Absolutely. So I think given the, everything that we've covered so far, now that we kind of know what a euphemism is and why it might be in place, it's definitely worth talking about the behavioral perspective of euphemism. So what does this look like from our perspective? Given the psychology today's quote above, it reduces the aversive effect of the actual phrase. So we're likely looking at what types of verbal language accomplish a particular goal. So for example, to soothe, to make someone laugh, to solve a problem, to discuss a topic. Essentially what we're talking about here is how do we look at euphemisms in terms of what function they have or what purpose they serve? And to do so, this is using a phrase without producing an unwanted reaction. So you avoid a particular type of reaction. Yeah. And I think this is important to look at from like a practitioner standpoint, like somebody who is trying to provide news or maybe go over a report or describe a really complex thing in a simpler, more user-friendly manner, right? So we spend a lot of time talking about using layperson language to describe some concepts or principles. And it's, you know, if I go in and I say, well, positive reinforcement is just the addition of some kind of stimulus into the environment following a response is going to increase the future likelihood of a behavior occurring. Like if I say that, that doesn't really track with anybody. But if I say positive reinforcement, it's kind of like reward. People are like, got it. So like when you start looking at this like technical language piece or describing more complex concepts, using some kind of euphemism in, in maybe layperson terminology is helpful for getting a point across. And B.F. Skinner, one of the founding people involved in the development of behaviorism, he actually spoke a little bit about euphemisms and said that specifically that people use euphemisms to avoid using terms and how they are going to affect the particular audience. And so it's entirely avoiding using a phrasing or a terminology that's going to have an unwanted effect on your audience and therefore selecting a term or phrasing that is going to communicate the same idea but not have that negative effect on your listeners. Right. So as we start kind of getting into this a little bit more and from that behavioral perspective is sometimes these vague terms and these euphemisms that are used, they're not precise enough. So what ends up happening from the therapist standpoint is that they might hear something like a therapy patient might use something like that. And it doesn't give us enough information about whatever that person's experiencing or some kind of phenomenon. So for example, when a patient is using something to talk about loss or abuse or injury or disappointment, they might talk about things like stress. And we have to kind of go into it and look at stress from what is it internal or external stresses how is this coming out like what are you doing when you're stressed out like frustration what are you angry with what are you frustrated with what happens that makes you frustrated and so from a behavioral perspective we start pulling we have to pull more information when we don't have that really technical or that really precise honest language yeah so essentially trying to figure out what purpose the use of those euphemisms serve for someone who is Again, trying to communicate something, but without doing so directly. And But we need the directness. We need to know what it is. So if you're in that therapeutic setting, it's trying to extrapolate, how is this term being used? What is its function for this person in this particular context? And the therapist could interpret these as access points for further discussion. But what's important, though, is that for those of you who are in this position or interested in, in knowing how the therapist situation works, 
is that there is training involved and not just settling on the use of the euphemism and just letting it be there without actually trying to dive in a little deeper. And so really hearing what someone says and looking for clarification and not just accepting, oh, it's stress. Okay, got it. We don't need to ask any further questions about that. No, there's something more than that that's important. Right. So that's where kind of when we start looking at this, we have to find this balance of using technical language and rigid language versus use of euphemisms in science versus application. We have to kind of find this balance across all these things. Usually a simple answer will be the most helpful and it depends on who is speaking and the language that they have in their repertoire, right? So some people might use euphemisms because that's what works. That's what they were taught. You hear this a lot when people talk about anatomy. Specifically, I hear this a lot when in sex education where people will use kind of like playful names or different things for parts of the body. And it's not helpful when you're trying to figure out what happened to somebody or to try to teach them what's appropriate and what's not appropriate in the context of sex education. So like a hoo-ha. Yeah, yeah, hoo-ha or cookies or, you know, like- Flower. Dingies. Yeah, all that stuff is like not super helpful. So usually a simple answer, the correct answer, the correct terminology is the most helpful. So for example, if a team of cardiac surgeons are performing a triple bypass and using a complicated, like, you know, they're using terminology from Henry Gray's 1858 book, Gray's Anatomy, it's probably okay because that's the trained community. Those folks share that language. But if an entire hour of Gray's Anatomy, that show consists of only jargon, but no sexy time, then you're probably going to get a lot of bad ratings. So they have to have the sexy time part. I've never seen it, but I have no idea. It does seem sexy. Yeah. I mean, there's Dr. McDreamy and a Dr. McSteamy in the same hospital. It's impressive. (laughs) Sign me up for that hospital. (laughs) There's an article in 2017 in the journal behavior analysis and practice by Critchfield and colleagues. And they offered an entertaining insight into the emotional responses of many behavior analytic terms with respect to how pleasant or not that they are perceived and how we can use that information to guide how we disseminate our terms and concepts to the public and how people perceive and sort of consume literature and ideas from behavior analysis. Unfortunately, what ends up happening is behavior analysis kind of has this really well-known PR problem for insisting that other people use our language versus catering our language to other folks. And, you know, that is a unique challenge. Like you see this kind of a little bit among practitioners where people know these terms, they use these terms. It's, it's common practice. But Pat Fryman is one of the people that has kind of gotten me out of using those technical terms more often. He does say specifically, like, we are a field that insists on other people using our language and insists that our own use this language when we know these concepts and we know these principles and it becomes a problem. It doesn't solve a problem in speaking accessibly. It doesn't solve a problem with getting information out to people and disseminating in a way that's useful and that's consumable, which is part of the reason why we're even here discussing this in the first place Yeah, is getting the science out there to people so people can understand it in a way that makes sense to them. And so you'll see that in behavior analysis where there's a lot of use of technical language among the community and even kind of that one-upping piece. But we deal with a particularly vulnerable population in behavior analysis. A lot of times, the majority of behavior analysts do, caregivers included. Yeah, And to use a phrase like, We utilize differential reinforcement of alternative behavior procedures combined with a punishment procedure in which we terminated access to a preferred reinforcer contingent on an instance of head-directed self-injury, but then prompted a functional communication response that doesn't make any sense. I even had a hard time saying that. (laughs) You said it so well, though. That was amazing. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know how I did that, by the way. That's practice. I've been practicing and practicing. That's how you learn to do stuff. True. (laughs) Speaking of previous episode, it almost sounded like you were holding your nose, but I can attest 
that Shane did not hold his notes. <laughs> not today. Just that good at manipulating his voice. <laughs> <laughs> that long thing that Shane said. We use terms like that and phrasing like that and descriptions like that. And then we wonder why terms like play therapy or horse therapy or beanie baby therapy or kitty G therapy or essential oil <laughs> therapy could sound a lot more accessible and fun because, I mean, to be fair, and this is something that I think is always the balance that is strived for with scientists in general, is there is a level of precision in our language that has to be balanced with access by the verbal community. And unfortunately, pseudosciences, they are not bound in any way by precision of language or science. So to them, they can market however they want. They can just call it Beanie Baby Therapy, and it's like, sure. <laughs> I mean, why not? Yeah, like, why not? That's as technical as everything you're doing is going to be. So, like, we do want to find the best terms to communicate our ideas in a way that are accessible, while not also simultaneously, I guess, bowing down to pressure to say things that are incorrect. We want to say them correctly, but accessibly. And so sometimes that means come up with a catchy name that has the caveat of, like, this is what we're going to call this. And if you need to know more, this is not quite like detailed enough to explain what we're talking about, but like, we'll call it this because that's sufficient to get our idea across. That's, I think an important consideration here. And also acknowledging that the reason that those things sound more fun is because they are not beholden to any level of scientific scrutiny. Right. Like you can't look them up, <laughs> not in any sort of scientific stuff in, in scientific journals. You can Google them. They'll tell you what they think it means, but yeah. Yeah. Ultimately, that's what happens. It's like when you start getting into the space where you're using too much technical language, they don't have any meaning to somebody who's not trained or, or doesn't know that. So that's where euphemisms and metaphors and all that stuff come into play that are super helpful. So, But another thing, too, is as we use the terms more frequently and we are kind of linking them to those access points, the terms we can get away from using euphemisms and use the more precise terms as we go. So there is like like you said, there is like striking that balance in finding a way to make that like a normal term in the lexicon like how do you bring that into the cultural zeitgeist how do you bring that term like you know reinforcement in truly what it means into a space where the verbal community knows what it is and can use it and use it correctly it's a really good point and i want to make sure that we really hit this point clearly in case you weren't listening or just to make sure that we've said it twice so you hear it correctly is that words don't have any meaning so calling something a euphemism is just to say that functionally, this word replaces this other word in certain contexts, right? And that any word that we use to describe anything is just sounds that we make. And so it's, it's like a euphemism is just a word we use to describe that thing that are sounds we make less often when we're talking about that thing. And it's because there has been some amount of culture wrapped up around that other term. And so it's really just the idea here that euphemisms, when they become commonplace, they're no longer euphemisms. That's just the term we use. Alternatively, you could think of it as like all euphemisms are words that we use that are just in the process of becoming commonplace language. And that's just, it's just, sort of, I think, a really important point to, to say that like euphemisms and why we use them, like it's, there are multiple functions. And I think that one thing we didn't talk about as much, but I think a lot of people use euphemisms because they're comedic, because it's not a secret to anybody who hears it, what that euphemism entails or what that euphemism stands for. But it's funny because it downplays the other thing that it represents, right? And so we can, essentially, that's a euphemism that's kind of on its way to becoming the way that we describe something, and it's not even a euphemism anymore. And that there's, 
there are multiple functions, I guess, to use it. I guess we're already heading into to take home points, but yeah. I mean, that's pretty much what I would say about it too. Like, I don't really have anything else to follow up with that about, you know, I mean, we're just at that space where it's like, you know, euphemisms are there. It's important to know what they function for though. It's important to know what they do and, and really kind of the impacts they have on people, good and bad. Right. Alan wrote this outro for us. So we hope you enjoyed this hour of your life and we'll see you next Tuesday. Shane, you can't say stuff like that. That's, that's fine. What, it's, it's okay. It's not as bad. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> All right. Ready for some take-home points? Yes, let's do it. Okay. My first take-home point is essentially that you, a euphemism is just a term that we use in various ways. Sometimes it's for comedy effect. Sometimes it is to avoid saying something in a way that it's going to sound more... I guess you're, you're avoiding a particular reaction in your audience. And sometimes it is a way of being more politically correct. And that there are, there are multiple types, but really a euphemism is all in how it is being used. And it's not really any specific or, partic- or particular thing, but we use them for very specific reasons as the ones that I mentioned. My biggest takeaway from this too would be the idea that euphemism serves several purposes. And so that one size fits all piece that people tend to think about it, it doesn't really work. So like, for example, it shows us an evolution of moral or cultural values. It fuels endless opportunity for comedy to substitute those replacements for those edgy subjects. And it allows us an entry point for discussion of otherwise touchy subjects, but it might dismiss an otherwise serious or traumatic situation. It might cause difficulty in getting a point across during therapy. Or it could be an indicator for where to dive deeper. So there are a lot of different uses and a lot of different purposes or a lot of different, I guess, pathways to look at when the when when a euphemism does arise. You know, maybe sometimes we don't need to do a really deep analysis on that euphemism, but other times maybe we do. Maybe we just spend more time looking at why that person's using that term versus the real term, why they are using some kind of metaphor versus using the actual description of the event. And, and that's important. That'll give you important insight about that person or maybe that person's learning learning history specifically that was a much better way of saying what i was trying to communicate but <laughs> you know we we both have the same sort of idea on that take on point but that's great i think another take on point here is that to be careful i guess of when we use euphemisms because thinking about that psychology today article and how euphemisms when used in these situations where people are grieving in these situations where it's much better to be straightforward and honest we don't want to be insensitive to them but essentially when we use some of these platitudes and euphemisms what it can it can come across as feeling like we are invalidating that person's experience or we're essentially telling them that their grieving is inappropriate or that we don't feel comfortable around their emotions and that makes them again feel like they aren't comfortable feeling what they're feeling in that situation and that we want to be mindful that we don't use euphemisms in that instance because that's that's going to end up being harmful so I think that's that's a useful take home point to consider is that although I think euphemisms are great, I think they're a lot of fun. Let's be mindful of where we're using them in, in such a way that they're not creating harm. I couldn't have said it better myself. Well, thanks. <laughs> all right. So oh, that's all I've got. I don't have any other take home points besides that. Yeah, I think that pretty much nails it. It's just I was just thinking, like, what a fun idea of talking about euphemisms. So. I hope that we did a fairly sufficient job in covering this topic. I, you know, eventually at the end of the day, when we land on our take on points, it's always sort of like, hey, this is something that we learn to do and we don't learn to do it for a particular purpose because it's useful. But there's a lot of other things to unpack inside of that. That's just a lot of fun discussion and offers opportunities for jokes. Yeah, agreed. Awesome. Well, let's do some recommendations. Let's do it. Recommendations. 
All right. So I'm going to recommend a podcast. This is one of my absolute favorite podcasts. It's called CinemaSins Podcast. And it might even just be called, I think it's just called the CinemaSins Podcast now. I'm, uh, or it's out. I'm sorry. It's called the Sincast. But it's the, there's a YouTube channel called CinemaSins. And they do the everything wrong with videos about movies. And so it's like everything uh, wrong with Sonic and 15 minutes or less or something like that. And they've done several spinoffs from that. They now do TV sins and they do some other ones. I don't remember. And they paired up with some other YouTubers, but they also created this podcast. And if you like movies, it is seriously one of the most fun times to listen to them. Just talk about movies. They interview directors and actors. Sometimes uh, they'll do a bunch of rankings of like, let's choose our at the at the beginning of 2020. They did their best movies of the decade. And they did a bracket, like a baseball bracket, or maybe it's an NBA bracket, whatever, some sports bracket, to figure out what they ultimately decided on were the, was the best movie of the decade, and came to a great conclusion without spoiling anything. So anyway, that's my recommendation. It's just a really fun podcast, and I always look forward to it coming out. Yeah, awesome. I'm adding it to my list today, so after we finish, um, and I'm doing some, some work around the house, that should be fun. Awesome. All right. So my recommendation this week is just some advice for folks. I think if you have any family members or friends or people, you know, who have been incarcerated, I mean, obviously this is going to come with an asterisk, I should say, if you can write and visit those family members, if it's at all possible, you know, I have a family member who is currently incarcerated and wrote a letter to them. And one of the first things they said was, I wish more people would come visit me. I feel like my family forgot me. And, and just, that is a very human thing to feel, especially I can, I can all only imagine how lonely it must be to be in that space. But those little things, those, you know, those little bits of kindness, it doesn't take a lot to do, but it's something that could really make a difference between somebody really recovering and doing well in that space in, in a really rehabilitative way, or it could turn it, you know, without that, that lack of that, it can turn into some other things. So I just recommend just, if you can visit family members, visit friends, you know, obviously depending on the crime, like if you are the victim, don't go do that. You know, if you don't have to, that's not, not to put the onus on you, but, you know, I think it's just important to know that humans need that. And our prison system is not great for some of the folks that are in it. Fair. I don't know anybody who's incarcerated, but I think that's an awesome suggestion. And I definitely would encourage people to do that. And as you said, like when you are trying to reach out to someone you care about, not I think doing it for vengeance or trying to or reach out to someone you don't care about maybe is not the best. But, you know, if you want to express some kind of caring affection for someone that you that is incarcerated that i think that's a great suggestion yeah i mean it's a complicated feeling for sure but every little bit helps for sure all right let's go ahead and wrap this one up there we have had enough of the darkness for today so yes <laughs> that is euphemisms if you have any fun euphemisms you'd like to share with us we would very much like to hear them please reach out to us on social media or email us at info at www.podcast.com that is also the, our website where you can find more information about this episode and other episodes i want to thank you very much for listening thank you for recording with me today shane thank you alan kinsella for his awesome notes and research on this particular episode thank you amber wrote for her work on PR marketing and social media guru stuff that she does for us and of course everyone else on the team and all the help that they put into this couldn't have done it without any of you people that I just thanked so reach out to us let us know what you thought about this and if you have any fun stories about podcasts you like or incarcerated loved ones or or anything else and I think that's all I've got you have anything else nope that's it all right cool this is Abraham this is Shane we are out see ya You've been listening to Why We Do What We Do. 
Why We Do What We Do is supported in part by our amazing patrons. Thank you. If you like what you heard, consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash podcast. You can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at WWD Podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.wwdpodcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O, Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day.